This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Today, I want to welcome my Dharma sister, Mado, who's been uh, a visitor and a, a resident here at Jikoji uh, many times and and has, uh, I want to mention about one time she was here. She was actually here for my practice period when I was Shuso. And I was working full time, I think, on the Transbay Terminal downtown San Francisco. And Mito uh, was living, living here. And, and uh, Michael was away because I believe his sister was very ill. And so Mito held down the fort. Uh, week after week, day after day. I went off to work to, in the city and was here on weekends. And so on, only on weekends did we have a very small group to discuss the Dharma. But during the week, Mado, uh, as for the practice period, would meet with the people that were here. I think there was like Greg Campbell and and, and uh, John Flood and, and some, a few, couple few others. Scott, I think, was there. I was there. And you were there. And, and uh, you had good discussions, just fruitful discussions about the Diamond Sutra and other things. <laughs> so my gratitude, my enormous gratitude for the support that you gave me in my shoe sole, Mado. Hello, 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 everyone. I wish I were there with you. Thank you so much for inviting me to share the teacher's seat during Denkole Sashin. I'm kind of reminded of, I think it was in the 60s when people were experimenting with how many, how many bodies could fit in a VW bug or how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. And I'm wondering how many, here's a koan, how many Dharma teachers can sit on a Zafu and maintain social distancing? So I'm honored to be one of those who sits on the Zafu with you, not only as teachers, but as practitioners. And I'm at a safe um, social distance, being 3,000 miles away, but feeling also very close to all my Dharma brothers and sisters at Chikoji, as well as all of you who have joined this evening. I listened to um, the talk um, given last evening or last afternoon. Here it's an evening, it's six o'clock. And um, um, our teacher last evening talked about leaping uh, beyond the commentary, this, the sequential commentary um, on the Go on, uh, Go, uh, Genjo Koan, uh, leaping to a further uh, set of paragraphs. Um, I'm, my intention is to leap, <laughs> to leap outside of the Genjo Koan 
and I hope uh, I hope I don't know where I'm going to land, but um, that's my intention, and I hope I hope you'll come along with me uh, in that in that leap. Um, in in considering the Genjo Koan, I have three questions that I'd like to share with you tonight. And I'll, I'll formulate those questions so that we can have them in mind. The first is, if all things, according to Dogen, preach the Dharma, all things, why does a teacher have to speak? That's the first question. The second question, if Dogen is a monastic and is training monks and nuns, perhaps, why is the Genjo Koan addressed to a lay person? And some of his, many of his works are addressed to lay people. But this one in particular, which is so dense and so um, seminal, is addressed to a lay person, not to a monk. And the third question is, if the monk in the story responds to the koan with a bow and the master responds with a fan, how should the common person respond? How should the lay person respond? So those are my those are my three questions. And let's let's explore those together. You know, Dogen was quite prolific. He wrote uh, sermons and essays and discourses and koans and lectures and poems. Um, he 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 was quite a writer. And for, for someone who is writing about a practice and a way of being, which is beyond words and scriptures, he had a lot to say. This is a quote from Do, uh, Dogen. Grasses, trees, and lands together radiate a great light and endlessly expound the inconceivable profound dharma. Grass, trees, and walls bring forth the teaching to all beings, including common people and sages. Grass, flowers, 
mountains and waters flow into the Buddha way. Soil, rocks, sand, and pebbles uphold the Buddha seal. The turning of the great Dharma wheel is contained inside a particle of dust. Nothing is hidden. The wind is everywhere. The Dharma is everywhere. Everything is always preaching it, teaching it, even a particle of dust. So why teach? <laughs> why, why do we have to speak? Why do we have to make manifest what is already completely overt? It's all out there. Like a fish which swims in water, not knowing it is in water, we exist in the wind of Dharma, not knowing it's Dharma, until we are hooked and pulled out like a fish, which then gets thrown back out of compassion, back into the water, which is it's oh, suddenly I'm home. You know, I, I know now my realm, my place. So like Master Mayu, who is enacting the wind when he fans himself, so Dogen is enacting the Dharma when he speaks when he teaches. And so I bow to Dogen, that virtual bow. I bow to Dogen. And I actually could end there, like the monk. But instead, as a teacher, as a Dharma teacher, I have what um, Alan Watts called an irrepressible rascality. And I'm going to pick up that fan and start making wind. See what wind I can stir up. And maybe, maybe you'll tolerate that with me. I think I, I may have approached an answer to the first question. Dogen speaks endlessly to endlessly enact the Dharma. Question two. If, as Dharma teachers, monks, 
nuns are called to transmit the teachings. Why, what place does the lay person have in all of this? What possible interest would what Dogen calls a common person have in this incredibly um, mysterious, complex core teaching? This is, this is addressed to a common person, a common person who has some knowledge of the teaching. I ask myself every day, almost every day, certainly repeatedly, because most of my sangha at Owan is composed of lay practitioners, not monastics, not even those studying to be monastics, monks or nuns. All common people, common persons, not common in a derogatory sense. So I ask myself, why, you know, what interest would a, an ordinary practitioner, a householder, have in this kind of profound teaching? As a Dharma teacher, Dogen's calling is to transmit the Dharma. It's his fanning himself. The Genjo Koan is Dogen's fanning himself, or just fanning, bringing forth the wind of the Dharma. However, transmission is really not enough. It's not complete. It's not complete without actualization. Being a monk is not enough. In fact, I think Coben was known to say periodically that um, wearing these robes is to be treated as a step down. Transmission must go along with actualization. Otherwise, it's just a, a wind that is never actually felt. It's, it's, it's air that we live in, but we don't feel it. We don't experience it directly. And so the monk, the teacher, absolutely requires the common person to actualize the teachings in everyday life. So 
the fan and the wind absolutely go together. The teacher and the student, the sage and the common person, enlightenment and practice absolutely go together. Um, Nico, uh, I had a, a visual. Do you have it um, available to share? Yes, thank you so much. This has been, this visual has been enormously helpful to me. And I hope, I hope you'll find some, something to contemplate here and to explore. This is, I think, something very typical uh, that most of you recognize in one form or another. It's a figure and ground. But to me, it, it's a way of entering the inseparability of dualities. It's not really that the dualities, the teacher and student, enlightenment and practice, uh, the, the self and the other, it's not that they become one in some sort of new agey kind of amoebic-like <laughs> substance. It's the, the difference is absolutely apparent between the vase and the heads. There is no, uh, there is no homogeneity there. That's not the kind of oneness that uh, transmission and realization share. It's their inseparability. There's difference, but that very difference is defined by the inseparability of, the, of that difference. It's one of those Zen paradoxes, but it's something that you can, um, you can dwell with. And maybe it's a, it's a, it's a gateway into some sort of appreciation of how our lives intersect or are codependent, co-being, co interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh would say. We inter-are, but that in no way eliminates our differences. In fact, it actually um, depends on our differences. We define each other. And that is true of everything in the universe. So my understanding is evolving, as I'm joyful that it is, that when we approach in our practice, we approach that edge. That's where enlightenment takes place. That's where awakening takes place. That we, we live at that intersection 
of the universal, the particular, as I say, the self and the other, uh, transmission and actualization, the sage and the common person, we approach that edge and this in a way is what might be called the middle way. Not, not, the, not necessarily the simple way of moderation, but the way of being right in the middle of these intersections. These being withs. So, Koshu Yo, Dogen's lay student. What a lucky guy to have a teacher like Dogen. Okay, Nico, thank you for, for that. You know, I could also add another another piece to this to the answer to the the response to this question, and that is that in 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 some sense the common person is analogous to being born in the human realm, in the wheel of life. It is said that being born as a human being gives us a great advantage toward realizing enlightenment, anuttara, samyak, sambodhi, complete, unsurpassable, perfect enlightenment. Being human gives us a greater opportunity to enter that than even the gods, even the monks, you know, even the, the, the Zen masters, in the heaven realms, the beings are just having so much fun that they're not even aware of the possibilities of liberation. And similarly, in the hell realms, those beings are so preoccupied and so overwhelmed with their suffering that they are not available to the Dharma. But the human, the common person who has heard the teaching in, in this middle space, not necessarily the monks and the nuns who are subject to the, to the the temptations of what Trumpa Rinpoche called spiritual materialism. There's a real, there's a real danger 
to spiritual materialism in that God realm, but also in the realm of the hungry ghosts and the animals in the realm of common people who have never even heard of the teachings, who aren't aware of them, are less available to liberation. But those common people, the people largely in our sanghas, who are householders, who live their lives in, in the mundane world, and who've heard the teaching, who know the teaching is there, are kind of like being born in the human realm, in the wheel of life. And my last question. For all of us common people, common persons, what is the appropriate response to the gift of the Genjo Koan? The monk bowed, the master fanned. But what about us? We're not monks, most of us, and certainly not the one that Dogen addressed in this koan. Nor are we simply common people who haven't heard the teachings. We are lay practitioners for the most part. So hearing this koan, what is its meaning for us? How are we invited to respond to it? However difficult, however dense, however complex, however mysterious it is. Well, this may seem a bit radical But I want to introduce something that Albert Camus spoke about. He's a French existentialist philosopher who wrote a series of essays on suicide. And his claim was that the only really meaningful question for philosophy was whether or not to commit suicide. Given the absurdity of life, that is, that we live a human life which ends, which is, of course, the first a noble truth, that there is impermanence. So if there is impermanence, 
Why should we live? Why not just take our lives? This is a, a, a deep question. It's a koan. It may be the koan that emerges from the Genjo koan for all of us who are alive and are living a human life. Why, why live? Why live in the, in the wind of absurdity? What we learn from the Genjo koan is that all beings in this vast universe, in this wind of life, need our particular life to enact its reality. This is actualization. We are needed. Our particular actualization, our particular human life is needed to complete and actualize all life. Each and every life is indispensable as it is as it is not as it ought to be or how we imagine it to be but as it is as it unfolds as it actualizes itself we are at the same time bringing forth the life of all beings in that, in that um, boundless boundary between the vase and the silhouettes of heads. One of my favorite poets, Rilke, says something says many things almost as profound and beautiful as Dogen. And this is from Rilke. Because truly being here is so much. Because everything here apparently needs us. This floating world which in some strange way keeps calling to us, us, the most fleeting of all. Read that again. Because truly being here is so much, because everything here apparently needs us, this floating world, which is in some strange way, keeps calling to us, us, 
the most fleeting of all. We're needed, each of us. This is our bodhisattva vow, to serve all beings by bringing them forth as we practice. So I'm remembering the email from Nico that the schedule that she sent out could be used as a bookmark. And I'm thinking that my notes could be used as a fan. And I could go on fanning myself and bringing forth the wind. Thank you. So please speak. Go ahead, Ross. So there's the gatha that follows the Dharma talk? Yes. Or do, or do you do the discussion beforehand? We really close off. So I, I was uh, when you mentioned the vase, uh, Joko has a, uh, uses that same image, and I really like the quote she had. Uh, it's it's a little different uh, use of the image, but I still like the quote, and I thought maybe it complements it. But anyway, when I hear the word transformation. I think of those line drawings that look like a vase and then suddenly switch into a face. That's transformation. Yeah, I'm inviting us to um, (laughs) not to switch, (laughs) but to live on the edge. Not to switch, that the, that the deepest transformation is to be in the middle, just, just an invitation. Hi, can you give another example, please, of being on the edge? Hi, did you hear me? Yes, I can. Um, I've sometimes used the um, the metaphor of um, many, uh, many Dharma teachings talk about the fact that, um, that we have this golden interior, which we call Buddha nature, and it's covered over by 
plaster. It's like the Buddha statue, a Buddha statue who has, which has a gold, a precious interior and um, a plaster covering. And when you break up the plastic, you find the gold. Um, and I mean, I, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting is that, that we can live in the place where the plaster meets the gold, that we can find a way to live our lives, uh, the plaster being kind of the mundane everyday life, and the gold being our spiritual nature, our true nature, our Buddha nature, this golden perfection, that somehow we, we find a way to live out our everyday life out of our, our deepest nature so that we manifest in our everyday life the deepest understanding that we have of true reality. So I, you know, I, it's hard for me to give you um, a, um, a more specific example than that, uh, except to invite you to find ways in which in your own life, you feel as if you're acting not simply out of um, a, uh, a uh, limited and particular place, but that you are living out of a much deeper place, even though you're manifesting that in a specific action. So it's where it's, yeah, it's where the, where the, where the gold meets the plaster or um, where the, di I often say, where the diamond meets the dirt. <laughs> you know, it's that place. You're not sacrificing uh, your everyday life. You're, you're not living in some kind of ethereal space. You're still brushing your teeth. You're, you're uh, making tea. You are having dinner with friends. You're, but the, the senses that you're carrying out those activities uh, from a much deeper place than the mere activities themselves. Thank you. I hope that was helpful. More. Um, could you, uh, what was the name of that poet again, and what was the title of the poem that you? Uh, who is that? Is that Chris? It's Boris here in Cleveland. Oh, Boris. Okay. Yeah, it's Rilke, R-I-L-K-E. And I truly, I, this is one of those uh, little scrap pieces of paper that I have all around my my study <laughs> that I just write down and I know it's from Rilke, but I don't know where, uh, which particular poem or essay. So I wish I, I could help you on that, but it's one of those 
scraps. So maybe in the course of, of trying to find out its source, you'll find out a lot more about Rilke or a lot more than you anticipated. That's how it usually happens. <laughs> Thank you. That's the way it happens. With I'll probably try to find it as well and come across a lot more than I got bargained for. So thank you for the question. Hi, Mido. Hi, hi, Nico. Hi, uh, thank you for your talk. I really appreciate that um, graphic with the vase and the face. I remember the first time I was exposed to that, I was in grade school and it really uh, struck me. It, it was one of those moments of like, I, I want to say insight or enlightenment because I'm applying those words to it, you know, in the in retrospect, um, but I was really taken with it because like, how can that be? I learned that, I uh, first saw that image in connection with uh, learning the word interface. I'm not sure if you used it, but they described the interface as that line that is defined by the coming together and how it doesn't really exist. It's not really there. It's it's a product of the two. And that really uh, blew me away. <laughs> the, but what was what happens, uh, not long after that, I was subsequently exposed to the yin yang symbol. And they struck me as being pretty much the same thing. Um, they've got these two fields and they're defining the point of interest, not intersection, but um, the interface where, where they meet. You can almost imagine the, the, the lighter parts on the outside coming together. So the noses of the faces come together to close up that space. And you've then just swirl it a little bit and you've got your yin yang. Um, so I'm always looking at the lines that don't actually exist. The horizon isn't really there. So trying to reconcile that razor's edge. It's possible that you use razor's edge in your last talk when you referred to this image, or I could be conflating that with something else. But um, anyway, I just wanted to sh uh, share that. So thank you for your talk and the image and bringing all that up. Thank you. Yeah, I considered um, using the yin yang symbol as well. Um, but there was something about the this particular figure ground image that um, drew me to it because it it has a greater form uh, it, it, you know what I'm talking, you're, you're shaking your head. So um, <laughs> the forms in it are much, are what 
what seemed to be much more recognizable to us. That is, this is a vase and these are two heads. Whereas the yin yang is, I think is basically saying the same thing, maybe even in a more profound way, because then there are those other two little circles that are uh, within the, the larger form. But this one seemed to be more appropriate for us common folks <laughs> because, um, because we think we recognize the separateness of things. Oh, this is a head. This is, you know, we've given these things names. So it seemed like a more appropriate way of introducing this non-separation. It's not even non-separation. It's mutual mutual definition or, or inseparable um, realities um, that are are um, are the truth of what we think we recognize as separate things that we give names to so um, and I love your your um, your comment that the line really doesn't exist. Um, in some sense, that's, you know, we, we have a visual image, but this is our way of actualizing something that is, <laughs> you know, that is non-describable, non just like the wind. So by, by putting that, those lines in, we are bringing forward the absolute non non um, separation of by separating them um, and showing how they can't exist separately, we are bringing forward the inseparability of things. It's just our it's a way of fanning ourselves. Does that make any sense? It makes sense. <laughs> Okay. Bro. <laughs> Today. Don't you have anything to say? <laughs> I can't even see you. But I know you're there. I'm hidden behind a mask. <laughs> I'm defined by this mask. <laughs> so are we all. We're non-separate in that way. Mido, thank you. I, I want to, um, uh, you, you brought up about how uh, Dogen offered this to this most fortunate layman. But I want to um, also encourage everybody to uh, recognize that basically we're all of us are monks. All of us are trying to find our way, no matter, some of us may have taken a vow and we're, we're the garb of being a monk, but uh, you know, we're all born independently. We all die independently. We're all trying to figure out how to get get through this life as in the best way possible. And, and I would say we're all monks in this. And I think we're all practiced monks. And, and, uh, and I, I, I want to 
you know, yes, all things are teachers. Um, and I also think that um, uh, what, where teachers might be helpful is um, to uh, accelerate some of the teachings that, um, you know, start cascading as you get further along on the path, it seems like. Um, but it's important uh, for people to have realizations, to have insights. And they happen outside of Sashim. And there are also accidents that happen during Sashim. So um, uh, that's why uh, we're here, is to create uh, insightful accidents for everyone. So thank you. Uh, do you what do you think about um, monks? What do I think about monks? I yeah, want to give them all a hug. <laughs> <laughs> They're Dharma brothers. <laughs> um, but can, can you also say that we're all common people too? Mm -hmm. If we mm -hmm. want to make that that distinction that we're all lay practitioners as well uh, it's it's really important for me um, i mean i don't regard myself as a nun or a monk um, uh, that periodically and quite regularly i i just i don't i don't wear this um, i don't wear my robes uh, and it's really important to feel to feel uh to feel like a, a common person. Uh, Rinzai talked about this as being a true person of no rank. A mm -hmm. true person of no rank. So no rank, no, no label, uh, just, just um, a bowing being. <laughs> a bowing being, uh, a being living out his or her particular life in the very best way that we can do that. So, um, yeah, I, I would like to be able to say that uh, we're all monks and we're all lay people and um, we, we need each other. <laughs> I mean, what would it mean to be a monk uh, without having practitioners, having students, having having those who are coming, coming into practice, who are entering the Dharma, what would it mean for us to, to be monks or teachers or tr transmitters without, without those who can actualize the teachings in their everyday life? Yeah. Uh actualizing um, is, is what this is all about. You know, it's, uh, uh, but, um, and I think uh, this uh, group we have of self-actualized beings, uh, that's how we come together and support uh, this practice. So thank you so much. Are there, is there any other question? Yes, quick question. This is Paul. I don't know if you can hear me. I can, Paul. Hi. Hi, thank you. Um, really 
nice twist, I thought, on instead of moderation of the middle way, this kind of holding your place in this kind of middle space. And I thought it was interesting that, you know, last night, the conversation of kind of being with or this idea of Fukan Kaigi, if I get that correct, as, as Dean was referencing last night, and, you know, this this concept of kind of almost holding your ground. And for me, that's kind of in one of parts of my practices, that's kind of a fearful place to be at times um, is, is holding in that space where you're right on the edge. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or insight on into, you know, how you hold that ground a bit. Yeah. Um, Sangha helps. Sangha really helps. Um, continually reminding us and supporting us and one supporting each other in holding. I mean, it's, it's like holding our seat. Uh, when we sit, I think you were talking about, um, I listened to Dean's talk um, uh, online. Not I, We had book study last night here at Oan, so I couldn't be there, but um, uh, I think it was you that talked about having a difficult time practicing on your own. Was that, was that you? No, that wasn't me, but it, it resonates, of course. Okay. Yeah. So when we sit, um, when we sit with Sangha, uh, we feel that energy of support, um, particularly in our, in the first stages of practice. Um, and that helps us hold our seat just literally helps us to keep our seat because this one on this side and this one on this side <laughs> is kind of holding, holding that space uh, for us to sit in silence and in stillness. And similarly, when we live our life, we, our practice is to hold, not in a tense way, because to hold that middle has to be very flexible because it's constantly changing. It's con the shapes are constantly changing. So we, we, we need to be flexible and not, not the lines are not permanently drawn. Um, but our Sangha and our teachers and our studies can help us remember remember and give us confidence that we can do this that 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 we have a lineage uh, uh that of promises of testimony that it can be done and that we have the support of this entire lineage and of the entire universe uh and which is our larger sangha to help us hold that middle way to help us keep our seat, to help us move through our daily lives with our cushions inside of us. So that we, we sit so repeatedly and so dedicatedly that eventually the cushion just, we can absorb the cushion inside of us and we can move through life on that razor's edge. But of course, we're 
we're falling off and we come back and, you know, this is, this is human life. But Sangha is one of those jewels that, and, and I'm not just talking about our local Sangha, that's really important, but our broad Sangha, broader Sangha of all beings. Ask for help from the trees, from the earthworms, from the cats, from the stars. They'll help you stay, stay in that beautiful middle space, that middle ground. Thank you. Thank you, Mado, for your talk and these provocative questions on the Dogen. I, I, I would really like you to ask a question. Um, thanks for that, Mado. Um, thank you very much for your talk. Um, and also, in response to this, this last exchange, um, what arose for me in that is um, as I grow, as I attempt to grow in my, my spiritual life and my life within the Sangha, I identify with the idea of fear associated with um, attempting things that I was not comfortable trying previously or taking risks, as it were, in uh, speaking up or in uh, perhaps even in withdrawing to take care of myself. And this brings me to um, the question, you know, why do you suppose um, so far, why do you suppose so far in, in all of the stories that I've been exposed to, stories of the masters um, faltering or um, having doubt or um, being far more human, um, is it because they were perfect? Is it because there is something culturally that uh, wants to create these idol figures because it's easier to get people to pay attention to them? I'm really curious about this because I find um, uh, is there something lacking and that I would get some courage if there were, um, I'd just like to hear your take on that on the, uh, that's, 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 getting self-conscious and I hope there was something there to grab onto but uh, a thread <laughs> um, I'm gonna ask you to um, am I understanding you correctly I, uh, you broke up there for a while um, that you're asking about the, um, the the doubts or the or the um, the difficulties that masters, Zen masters have that, yeah, yeah go ahead. You're, you're on the right thread, yeah, and, and they don't seem to be talked about or um... Yeah, um, I mean, I'm thinking particularly of the, um, the scandals, for example, the weaknesses, uh, some of the scandals that have been um, publicized about masters. Are, are you referring to that kind of thing? Um, no, I'm thinking uh, in the, uh, what's the word, the, the lexicon uh, of stories that have been passed on as 
These are the hallowed stories. It's only of the perfect people that get passed along. The Dogans, the Bod Bodhidharmas, um, the, you know, the sixth ancestor, who are all of these perfect figures. What do you make of that? Um, I, can, I can say this, that um, as a Dharma teacher, I do my very best to offer my students and others who are interested in the teachings, um, I try my very best to give my very best so that um, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that uh, I'm not, uh, I don't fail in a million different ways um, uh, and that I, I haven't and continue to have to go through what some call the, the dark night of the soul <laughs> or go through the gauntlet of, um, of human uh, struggles and difficulties and um, no. But as a teacher, um, my effort is always to inspire and to, um, to provide confidence uh, in the practice um, and and to give the very best that I I can my best understanding and I suspect that that's what what is passed on you know what is passed on from generation to generation is the inspiration the best understanding uh, that these masters these teachers can offer um, but again that often comes at the cost of great suffering. Uh, and that, that is the, the nectar, the juice that, that is, 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 is um, squeezed out of this, this darkness or the, 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 pro the suffering that we all go through. So there's a promise there. There's a testimony there about what can come from human suffering? It's not necessarily that the suffering is always presented as suffering, but it's presented as the, the practice that liberates us from suffering. And so that's what we want to pass on with the understanding, with that first noble truth, that there is suffering and that we, we just assume and suppose that every one of these masters, can you imagine a Bodhidharma sitting in front of the wall without suffering? Um, or Dogen himself losing his mother at the age of eight and not having a father and uh, wandering. I mean, it, all of this is, you know, we, we assume that um, that all of our great teachers have gone through tremendous uh, struggle and, and this practice, this teaching has been transformative. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you for the question. It's a good, it's a good observation. I have a, I have a question. Um, 
all of these teachers, including you, are, are perhaps sort of um, spoiling us and teaching us all very nicely about thing about the Dharma and so on. And so that as a result, we're not very good at going out and listening to the 10,000 things who are preaching the Dharma all the time. So how do we, how do we uh, listen to, to the world, to nature, and so on? Do we all do it just on our own? Yeah. Um, as Dogen says, ev everything is preaching the Dharma. Everything. But you know, our world is becoming um, less and less um, available to us in terms of trees and uh, waters and stars and uh, earthworms and all of the multiplicity of beings. Our world is becoming more and more a human construction. Um, and so we more and more value uh, our connection with other human beings. Our natural world, uh, the world that we're, we've been given, not the world that we create, create but all of those myriad 10,000 things are disappearing, um, being replaced by human constructions. And so more and more, we listen to podcasts. Uh, um, I mean, I'm not demeaning that, but, uh, but that's change. Our world is changing. And those 10,000 things are becoming less and less accessible to us. I feel very fortunate in living in the woods um, and very fortunate when I visit Jokoji because it, um, it's a place where we can, I think you were talking about the turkeys, um, you know, how many people uh, in our world uh, have, have the ears or the sounds of turkeys to hear the Dharma being preached? It's, it's a very sad thing that this multiplicity of teachings is less and less available to us. And more and more we rely on these guys, you know, to, um, to pass on the teachings. So I'm very sympathetic with that. Um, I mean, we have to make deliberate decision to get outdoors, to go on retreat uh, in, a, in a natural setting. Uh, to deliberately, you know, take our friends by the hands and say, let's go for a walk. Let's go in the woods. Let's, let's just get out of, of course, we're quarantined now. <laughs> so in a way, in a way, the quarantine is much larger than the COVID situation. Uh, we're more and more quarantined in a human world. And we have to make a very deliberate effort to preserve the 10,000 things and uh, the rocks and the seas and the corals and the birds and the, so that, that we can hear those teachings. Thank you, Jero. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jokoji.org.